people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Matthew Mallison. He is an editor, director, producer. He started his directing career with Fist of Fear, Touch of Death, went on to work on things such as Chameleon Street, even had a little bit of role in bringing to life The Baron, which we spoke about earlier this year. It was a great time talking with Mr. Mallison, had a lot of good stories to tell. I had a wonderful time talking with him, and I hope you have a great time hearing him. Enjoy the interview. I wanted to know how you got into filmmaking. Like a lot of people, I went to school, went to college. I actually went to NYU and to Queens College. Wanted to see what the NYU experience was like. But anyhow, after that, went out, and a lot of people go knocking on doors. And I made my way to a place called August Films which was referred to at the time as the Technicolor building because Technicolor occupied most of the space in that building. That 321 West 44, Technicolor is no longer there. But August Films was like the East Coast version of New World Pictures for those of people who are old enough to remember New World. Lots of production, throw you into a situation, and you just went for it. We cut a lot of trailers, Americanized a lot of pictures, a lot of pictures have come over from Europe, Italian, German, French, British, a lot of the new wave stuff. And we would do a variety of things there, but it was just a great way of experiencing the whole production process. We also did a lot of the, what you call the exploitation pictures from the stuff, what I call the pre-Disneyfication of Times Square, the Sunny Chiba pictures, things like Mess of the Flying Guillotines, when I remember... But did a lot of work for this guy, Terry Levine, Aquarius Leasing, Monarch Releasing, Alan Shackleton. Yeah, really got my feet wet really fast. Great place, great experience for anybody who got in there was able to cut it. Because there were people who came to August Films and just didn't have it. And they will go on after a period of time because they just, they, it wasn't the thing for them. You mentioned Americanization of films, and I'm curious what that entailed. Well, a lot of times, get a picture in. I'll give you an example. Terry Levine got a picture, which eventually we called Brutal Justice. It was an Italian picture. It was like Dirty Harry, an Italian answer to Dirty Harry. Had this very good-looking guy, like a cross between Clint Eastwood and uh, Rob Redford. It was Italian, and in order to Americanize a picture, they'd come in, and they'd have a lot of locations, but they'd be Italian locations, but they'd have elements that could be utilized in the final cut. And like, for instance, in, in this film, Brutal Justice, we fortunately it was already dubbed. So that saved us a lot of heartache. But for instance, they had a scene in an arcade, like Fascination used to be in Times Square, but it was called something else and it had an Italian name. So I would go out and shoot footage of like Fascination Times Square as the exterior establishing shot, and they'd cut into the interior, and you see these guys at the arcade games, and so for all intents and purposes, it was taking place in New York. 
at one point in that particular picture, guy picks up a matchbook cover and opens it up and it has a clue, the Dirty Harry character, of where he should go to find these killers. So, of course, that again is something that was all in Italian. So our art department made a matchbook that had the information that was important. And I, in fact, I remember in this particular one, I spread out a big plastic sheet, got some potting soil, mixed it in with debris and stuff to match where he was. And I got this guy, Scott, because his hand looks similar to the hand of the Dirty Harry character and had an insert shot where he reaches into frame and pulls up the matchbook and then intercut that was from the Italian version with what I reshot, which showed that, you know, he had to go to this warehouse because that's where this after hours party was taking place. And that's where the matchbook cover indicated he should go. So that's the kind of Americanization we would do so that as well as possible, people felt they were looking at an American version of the film. A lot of times the dubbing was not the best in the world. This dubbing was actually pretty good. The reason being is they had there was a popular thing to do, which was when actors, American actors, was just falling out of favor with the audience in the U.S. to go overseas to make a picture. In in Clint Eastwood's case, he started his career on the Italian spaghetti westerns and then became popular and was able to come back to the States. But in this instance, Arthur Kennedy, who was a really great stage actor and screen actor, went over there and he played the police commissioner. And so he was English. And if you know anything about Italian pictures, they shoot and they do all the sync afterwards on any picture, even on the Italian-based pictures, because they can shoot much faster than we know on the sound department to say, yeah, we got a good take. So when you have an American actor dubbing themselves, they obviously can do a much better job than if somebody is saying something in Italian and you're trying to put words in their mouth that are the English equivalent. Mm. But uh, yeah, so we did a lot of that at August Films. Sometimes it was just a subtitling job for French New Wave kind of things or German pictures. Sometimes they want to do recuts to cut down the running time or things were deemed to be unfavorable or maybe not something somebody would understand in an American audience. It, it varied. Do you remember what years you were working there? You know, the funny thing about August Films, because Simon Nocturne, who founded August Films, you'd come there and work for him, and he knew you were going to leave eventually because he didn't pay a lot of money. So I started like 70, I think it was like 75, 76, and I left around 79, 80. But like, for instance, I would rent edit rooms from him, and this is well in through the into the 80s, into the early 90s. Because he still had, he had great deals on space and it was reliable and it was dependable. And I knew the facility and I knew the people there. So I probably only worked there for about, you know, maybe three or four years. But I worked at that space in one capacity or another 10, 15 years, not necessarily for him. How did Don't Go in the House come together? Don't Go in the House was actually something that started out as an idea from this fellow, Joe Maysfield, who... We referred to at August Films as Hollywood Joe. He was one of these guys who just had, he knew all this minutia about Hollywood, the things that, you know, hey, did you know that so-and-so was the second AD on 
last house on the left? And I'm saying, no, and do I really care, Joe? He was a great resource. He would put out these little newsletters, which he would print out and distribute to us about all kinds of little film events that were going on. And this was pre-internet. So it was like he was disseminating his information way before people were doing stuff online. Anyhow, he had this idea, which was called The Burning Man. And there was a couple of people who were hanging out at August Films, Joe Ellison and Alan Hamill. And they, Joe was, Joe had working as a dubbing director and he really wanted to do a film. So when he was schmoozing with Macefield, they started to work on this idea and they thought it was feasible. And at that point, they needed somebody who knew the process. Macefield didn't want to get involved in the production, post-production process. I knew what there was to know. Joe Ellison and his girlfriend, Ellen Hamill, who became one of the producers, didn't really know anything. Joe knew dubbing, but he didn't know anything once he supervised the, a dubbing session, anything that was involved in the process. So they brought me in to, to handle all of that. I became like the line producer of the show, and we brought it together. It was a real grind, a no-budget film. And in fact, it was probably the first film, at least that I'm aware of, where the technique where you would take a credit card, get a cash advance, and then use that to finance the motion picture had been used. It was, I, think it was, I think it was Ellen who actually came up with the idea. And I always found it amusing because you're staying one step ahead of the credit agency, but you're getting cash. And I don't know how many cards she and Joe took out because I said to them, I said, I really don't want to get involved in that aspect of it. But I said, it's a novel idea. Go for it. And uh, they kept taking out credit cards. <laughs> hey, the film eventually got done, so it worked. So you do what you got to do to get it done. That's what it comes down to. How did Fist of Fear, Touch of Death happen for you? Fist of Fear, Touch of Death was, it was a pleasant accident. I had done a lot of work for Terry Levine on various pictures, like Brutal Justice was one of his pictures. And I had actually just, I ran to him on the street and I had just produced some, they weren't even called music videos back then because this was back in like the 70s, late 70s. It was a music film where you have a recording artist and we had hooked up with Albert Grossman. I don't know if you remember, Albert Grossman was the man who discovered Bob Dylan. And he had this new recording artist, Randy Van Warmer, who had one of these hits where if you sit on the beach in the summer, they would play ad nauseum over and over again. Anyhow, I had just done those music videos. And so I was between gigs. I was out of August films. And Terry said to me, you're very familiar with my inventory of films. I've got these boxes sitting over on the west side. Can you go and inventory it for me because I want to send it to Bonded. And I don't even know if Bonded still exists, but Bonded was a place where you'd send your inventory footage, box footage, for long-term storage. And you had to carefully inventory it because if, let's say, you needed the printing negative for the Brutal Justice trailer, you had to know it was in box seven. So when you made a call to Bonded and said, can you bring me box seven, they'd bring you the box that had the material you wanted. So he just had a bunch of material over there and he wanted to organize and he knew I was good at organizing stuff. And so I went over there 
And I went through all this material, and most of it I was very familiar with. And then this one box was there, and it was a box of 10 reels, and it was a black and white film, and a lot of Chinese writing, but on the outside it said Bruce Lee. And it didn't say Bruce Lai or some variant, it was Bruce Lee. So I'm saying, wow, Bruce Lee. I said, what is Terry doing with a Bruce Lee film that I've never heard of, and why didn't he release it? So... I inventoried all this stuff, and then I pointed this out to him, and then he said, oh, yeah, I forgot all about that. He had acquired a Bruce Lee film, a black-and-white film of Bruce Lee as a straight dramatic actor, and he was called Thunderstorm, and he was a very young man, probably, I don't know, late teens, 20s, but definitely Bruce Lee. And I always referred to it as Bruce Lee and Death of a Salesman because as you watch the film unfold, there were a lot of elements similar to Deathbed Salesman. He had an older brother who came home, who was a failure, and uh, people were hard on him because he didn't make it. And Bruce was this young, energetic kid. From what I recall of the original story, long story short, the Bruce kind of, they allude to Bruce taking up with some sort of liaison with his older brother's girlfriend. And of course, the elements looked down on this unfavorably, so... They're both struck down by lightning and killed. But so I kind of, I guess it's like Chinese morality play. You don't do that, and here's what happens if you do. But looking at it today, you say, wow, they would even let somebody in China, mainly in China, make a film like this? Who knows? But anyhow, so you look at it and you say, yeah, it's Bruce Lee. He's not doing any martial arts. And this guy named Ron Harvey who worked in Terry's office, who was at a Spartan screenwriter said he had this idea and the idea was why don't we incorporate this into a much larger film and it turned out at the time that terry was able to convince people like aaron banks bill louis fred williamson to participate but didn't really have a story so then i said maybe if you use this black and white footage in conjunction with something else and maybe film some action sequences with Fred and Bill Louie and Aaron Banks. And Aaron Banks was like the reigning karate guy in New York, if there was such a, a title. Bill Louie was the up-and-coming guy who was saying, I'm the new kid on the block, come to me. So that was enough to get Ron's creative juices flowing. And then they came to me with this really weird thing. They said, we have that Japanese samurai film as well. What if the Japanese samurai was Bruce Lee's great-grandfather, and this could be like a flashback kind of thing. And I said, wait a second, guys. You're telling me that a Japanese samurai is Chinese Bruce Lee's great-grandfather? And I said, yeah. I said, no, guys, you're serious. I said, oh, yeah. I said, I don't know. that That's crazy. I said, Japanese, just because they're Asian doesn't mean that they're related. <laughs> Jap Japanese not related to Chinese. I'm sorry. And they said, don't worry about it. We'll handle the marketing. I said, okay, all right. So Ron worked out this framework where we utilized this Japanese samurai film and the Bruce Lee film. You just had to have it in the film so you could legitimately say Bruce Lee's in this film. But the bulk of it had to be new footage. So we did this whole sequence of events where we utilized Aaron Banks, we used Bill Louie, Fred Williamson. Oh, we also had Adolf Caesar who you may or may right. not be familiar with. But Adolf used to do a lot of voiceover work for Terry. Oh, yeah. He's and, got that great voice. And, 
oh man, just like really just, you know, I'm not doing justice. You feel the terror, feel the horror. Adolf would walk in and he just did it. And he was a trained theatrical actor. He got nominated and I think he won for Soldier Story, which was directed by No One Jewish and just all the and just a really nice guy. So he came in on board and we conceived this whole series of, I guess you call it, I call it a mockumentary because what we did was we went to Madison Square Garden because Aaron Banks was hosting his big martial arts event and we got Adolf Caesar and Fred Williamson to act as if they were commentators at the event, kind of like a World Federation wrestling kind of thing. What's funny is that most of the stuff I did was like non-union stuff, although I would work on union stuff, but went and presented Terry with a crew. But I said, Terry, Master Garden's a union shop. You have to bring in a union crew. And he says, we can't afford that. I said, I said, the only way you could go in there is if you were doing a documentary. So that was enough to get Terry and his art department going. So they concocted these, the oldest artwork that made it look like a film crew from a television station was coming in to cover the event at the garden. So with a documentary television crew, they don't care about the unionization aspect of it. So it was really hilarious because to this day, although maybe now if somebody's listening, as far as Massacre Garden was concerned, this was just a television station came in, which really floored me because the logo was W-A-Q-U, Aquarius releasing, A-Q-U, and that was on all the stuff, on the lapel logos, on the microphones, on everything, and nobody ever questioned that. What station is that? I never heard of this station, but we went in there with a full crew and shot this thing and incorporated this footage, and I shot some exterior stuff. I shot, I remember I did a, a whole thing with Bill Louie, down in Chinatown on Bayard Street and also in the South Street Seaport doing this whole thing as a Cato kind of character. The whole thing, like I said, I looked at it as a mockumentary because it was, it reminded me of Woody Allen's What's Up Tiger Lily. You're making something into something that appears to be legit, but it really isn't. Some people understood the humor behind This the Fear Touch of Death. Some people didn't. They thought it, it was shameful. The criticism about the Japanese grandfather, Bruce Lee's Chinese, that I completely understood because right from the get-go, I said, that's ridiculous. Again, there was Terry and Ron, and that's the way they operated. Mm. And actually, it would, Ron came up with the structure, but I would go in. I had to. I had a really challenging task with the footage because I had this Japanese samurai film, which was CinemaScope, so it's widescreen. And then I had the Bruce Lee footage, which was black and white, four by three, but could fit into a 185 mask. And at the time, most theatrical releases were done in 185. So I said to Terry, I said, Terry, we have to decide on the format to go with so that I can conform all this material. Plus, he also acquired some... I also was shooting in 16, so the 16 had to go to whatever format we were shooting in because Terry felt Union 16 was going to be more economical. I said, yeah, I said, but then you have a conversion factor in there. So we decided to go 185, which meant that I had to go in like to the Bruce Lee footage, which had Mandarin 
and English subtitles. I had to go in and mask that to fit into the 185 frame. I had to take the scope footage and I had to do what's called pan and scan because the scope footage, the widescreen is great when you're in a theater, but in order to, the action would be far left and far right. You have to make a decision. Okay, what do I show at that point in time? Or do I pan across as if the camera was panning? A lot of times that's what I did in order to keep it within the 185 frame, which is a smaller frame than the CinemaScope frame. And then I had to blow up the 16 millimeter to 35 and also position it to 185. I, what did I use? I used a company called Select Effects. And I remember this guy, Tom, <laughs> he just, he said, what now? I said, well, here, Tom, we got to do this. And he was great because he took it all in stride was probably to date the most challenging technical job I had because of all the different formats that I had to contend with. Kind of like today, if you were working digital and had to deal with a variety of codecs and behind the scenes, what people go through nowadays is just, when you go to a theater and you see something, it's like, you know, I don't think people really appreciate the nightmare that post-production people go through to get there sometimes. Sometimes they don't go through a nightmare, but a lot of times they do. So finally, when Fits of Fear and Touch of Death was, Fits of Fear and Touch of Death was finished. By the way, the title comes from an argument Terry and I had, because I want to call the film Touch of Death, and because we alluded to the whole thing about Bruce Lee dying from the touch of death, and Terry said, you have to have fist in the title, because martial arts films, the successful ones have fist. So it was like, it was like the, the Chinatown scene. The daughter, sister, daughter, sister. Fist of fear, touch of death. Fist of fear, touch of death. And Ron said, why don't you call it fist of fear, touch of death? So Terry and I like, we went, okay. <laughs> so that was, that was it. So that's how it became fist of fear, touch of death. One of the longer titles in a martial arts film. Rival, rivaling the length of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But anyhow. Oh, I forgot. Rob Van Cleef sweetheart of a guy he was also in the film and i loved working with him in fact we did one scene uh, we were in thompson square park with ron and his he brought his students in and we had this altercation with a fight and terry had never produced a film before but there are things that i knew and one of the guys on ron van cleef's crew had a t-shirt on it had all it had some logo i can't remember from what but it was a very recognizable logo from a sports company and i said he can't wear that and terry said why i said terry i said if the company sees this and they don't feel you're depicting them in a favorable fashion they'll sue you so he said we're gonna do so you know that saying i'll give you the shirt off my back i looked at the guy i said you and i about the same side so i literally pulled my shirt off i had this terry claw t-shirt and i gave it to the guy and he wore my shirt and that's how we shot the scene that day. So I'm standing in Thompson Square Park shirtless, but I'm getting it done the way that it should got gotten done. But I'm always amused when I hear somebody say, oh, I'll give you the shirt off my back. Well, let me tell you about it. Shirt off the back. <laughs> it was an interesting picture to put together the cut. I was very proud of the end result. It opened and was reminded of Ron because when it opened, showman that Terry is, he went and he put on these live shows at the theaters on 42nd Street. He had one at the Selwyn. Terry's actual office was right above the Selwyn Theater. But I remember he had this live show at the Selwyn. And 
I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity, if anybody had an opportunity to visit those theaters, which were old war guilt theaters before it became the exploitation, X-rated cinemas that they were, but fabulous theaters. The detail that went into these places, it was a shame that so many of them had to be leveled to bring in new places. I love it when I hear about things where old theaters are being resurrected and they're trying to maintain the same integrity that the theater had in, in its heyday. But he put on this live show with Ron Van Cleef doing a live stage show, which was unheard of in, in, in Times Square for any theatrical release. But it brought in the people. They did phenomenal box office. He did great business with that film and was able to shop it around the country. And what was interesting is that when he released Fifth of Fear Touch of Death, it was around the same time that Don't Go in the House was released. And I actually have a point out somewhere from Variety when a Variety was on the print form. And it's very unique in that I had two films in Variety's top 50 in the same week. Don't Go in the House and Fist of Fear Touch of Death. And what was great about Fist of Fear Touch of Death is it had great per theater grosses. That's how you really judged a film back in the day that, you know, it, it's they could release the film, but if it was pulling in five grand, four grand, it was like, okay. Um, but he opened Fist of Fear Touch of Death in New York, I think in probably about 25 theaters, and he was grossing somewhere 10, 12 grand per theater on a, in the low-budget picture, which was you were getting first-front pictures that weren't opening with those kind of grosses. And uh, it was interesting to hang in with Terry because he showed me the whole distribution process. We, we had a total of, remember, we had 33 prints, and he would just move them across the country. And I said, it was, it was interesting the way he moved them from East Coast to West Coast. And he said, the reason he did that is that by the time they got to the West Coast, the prints were pretty much beat to hell. And back in the day... It wasn't digital. You had these big ICC cases, which were heavy. Shipping was expensive. Shipping added to the out-of-pocket costs of the film. So by the time they got to the West Coast, the prints were probably on their last legs, and he would just have them die a death in the West Coast. No, no point shipping them back east because he just incurred shipping expense so he could store it somewhere. It was probably actually cheaper to print, make a new print in New York at the lab than to ship any of the other prints from the West Coast back to the East Coast because they were so beat to hell. Yeah, that's just a fear touch of death in a nutshell. When you were working with Mr. Levine, from what I understand, you worked on a lot of projects that you weren't necessarily credited for. Is that true? Oh, yeah, yeah. That happened with Terry. That happened with August Films. Sometimes it depends on what capacity you're working in. But also there were instances where there were NDAs involved. Not in everything, but a lot of times you just would like, for whatever reason, like for instance, I remember working on Survivor. And I could talk about Survivor because they said, yeah, you could tell people you work on Survivor, but you can't tell them what you saw. Which, which made sense because there were times when I'd see things that were critical to how this CBS show Survivor was going to move along. Oh, look at that. Look what happened there. And I come home, hey, honey, you know, what's new? I was survivor today. I said, oh, interesting. And that was it. We're not, we're not talking about anything else, hon, that day because I honored the NDA. There was one film in particular that didn't have an NDA, but 
was very interesting in that Terry approached me and he had given a slight clue to people who are rarely film aficionados. He was approached by a, a guy who had a low-budget horror film named Mustafa Akkad. That's the hint. And Mustafa wanted Terry to distribute this low-budget horror film. So Terry said, Mustafa and I were discussing this, and if we can cut about 15, 20 minutes out of this film, we can get an extra screening in every day. And that's money in the bank. And I remember telling students, I taught AVID at NYU, and I used to tell students, we all want to be artists, but you will find quite often that people will discuss options with you that have nothing to do with art, but have only to do with dollar signs. And this was it. And Terry knew I was going to do a good job. I wasn't going to do a hack job. And he basically, he left me alone. And often when I do the free cuts, I'd say, is the director going to work with me? And they said, no, the director has bowed out. The director showed his shares back to Mustafa because he felt the film was going to be an utter failure. So I went in, cut this film, and cut out the footage. They, they didn't really care what I cut out. They just wanted me to get it down to this running time so they could book it one extra screening per night. Again, just dollars and cents. And the film opened the phenomenal box office. We never could have guessed it would have done this box office. That film was the original Halloween. And no credit on it. I know it. Handful of my friends know it. I don't there are times when you go in and you cut films and you say, God, I'm really doing something good here. I don't for any moment think that I saved Halloween, not even the least bit. All I did with Halloween is I tightened it up, but the story was all there and I just tightened it up really more to accommodate Terry, but also tightened it up in a way that I could live with, that I could feel proud of, that, as they say, kill two birds with one stone, I could accommodate their priority, and I can accommodate the idea that I want to do a good job. There's a bunch of those floating around that have NDAs, and it is what it is. A lot of times, the stuff I did at August Films, it wasn't practical to add a credit after the fact. Actually, I worked for Mustafa Akkad later on. Mustafa made a directorial debut. He did a film called Line of the Desert, Oliver Reed, Anthony Quinn. And he brought me in. To, he wanted to do a recut on it. I remember being there, and there were a bunch of, I guess you call them suits, for lack of a better word. And Mustafa, classy guy, very nice guy. But I remember these suits were really taken aback in the room there because I had watched the film, and I would have given Mustafa my feedback. And some of it was critical. I wasn't fresh, just critical about scene that, let's say, didn't work the way I think it should work and how it would work better. And I could tell these guys were like, whoa, you're talking like that to Mustafa? Because they were all, ye they were all yes men. They wanted to keep their six-figure salaries, and heaven forbid they should say anything. And again, I wasn't trashing Mustafa. I was giving him constructive criticism, and he appreciated that. And that's the way, that's the way I work. I can be a button pusher if you want me to be a button pusher, but sometimes people want me to give them the cold, hard facts. And that's what I said. Sometimes I would talk to people about, how about if you shoot this or shoot that? And most times they won't do a reshoot because they're already too far in the red to want to incur any additional costs, which is unfortunate. 
what anyone who's in post knows that they hear this over and over again. Somebody goes out and does their picture and they say they want to pay X dollars for the post. And they say, well, I don't work for that. Say, well, we have no money because they take, they always budget and they take all the post money and they put it into the production and by some miracle think that the money is going to magically show up and it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? Such is life. I give people budgets and I think they're realistic budgets. And I got to say, I can't recall actually going way over budget on anything. I did a lot of pictures for Earl Owensby. And Earl, I know, got really fed up with the post-production people to the point where I was the only editor left at his place, which really didn't make much sense because he kept shooting pictures and he would sit on the shelf waiting for me. And I think what it came down to is that I'd say to Earl, it's going to cost X dollars. And I just tell him if it was maybe X plus 10% would end up maybe what it actually cost, as opposed to it was like one picture they did there. And the sound job was in excess of $100,000, but it wasn't because mistakes were made. It's because they just decided to do it and not tell Earl. And what's Earl going to do about it? I don't know. It's, I don't know. It just, I don't work that way. I can't work that way. I know a lot of people who do work that way, but that's their thing. Where were you in your career when Chameleon Street came up? I had been cutting a film called, it was called Trapped. I think it was later released as Fur of a Mine. And the farm was being handled by a company called Films Around the World, Alex Kogan. And in fact, I edited a rented by edit room at August Films. And this was back in 88, 89, something like that. It was shot out in Wisconsin, and I was doing the post in New York. And it turned out that the editor suite across the way was occupied by Wendell Harris and Dan Lawton, who was the producer. And they shot on film and were transferring to tape, and they were screening their dailies in that room. They seemed to be having a good time. There was a lot of laughter because the way these edit rooms were set up, if you can imagine like cubicles in an office, the tops are all open. So there's like a level of privacy, but you could hear anything that's been going on from room to room. So I always hear a lot of laughter. And I remember that you know, I met Wendell, I met Dan, and they were just having a, a jolly time. Wendell was, I don't know, he didn't seem to have much to say. Dan was very talkative, mile a minute, blah, 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 blah. You meet people, and everybody's always excited about the film they're working on. So I, I finished up this film, I guess we'll call it Trapped, for Alex Kogan. And like a year later, Dan Lawton calls me up. And I figure, oh, Dan got my info. He's calling me up. I guess maybe they have another picture. And Dan says, we're looking for somebody to cut Chameleon Street. I said, Chameleon Street? That was like a year ago. He said, yeah, we don't have anything. I said, what do you mean you don't have anything? I said, it's been a year. And so Alex Kogan sent me a tape that was supposed to be what they had managed to put together over the course of the year. It was pretty much unwatchable. It was like, and it wasn't like, like I'm basing this on editorial decisions. It just was like, it was just like a mess. It was like all over the place. It's trying to look at this thing. What's going on here? There, there were, first of all, there were massive technical issues. There was, for people who are not aware of it, there was no, pretty much no control track on the tape. And for those of you familiar with that, control track it basically is what stabilizes the video image. Nowadays, 
It's like people go into post and you get a filter if you apply so you can make it look like you have no control track because you want to create certain quality in the imagery. But this just had no control track. It kept dropping out. And I was trying to figure out, was somebody like doing assemble edits on top of assemble edits without control track? Oh, insert. I said, I don't know what's going on here. So you could only see little snippets of what this story was. And Alex said he had apparently advanced him some money based on the guarantee of foreign distribution. And he was very concerned. And Dan, and Dan told me, he said, yeah, Wendell's mother took the film away from him, saying, really? So Wendell's not working on the film? Should no. I guess it was problematic. They were skirting around what the situation was. And then Helen, from what I discovered, Helen was in real estate. That's where she made her money. And so she, all she knew, she was the executive producer, and all she knew was that the film had to be cut or <laughs> it wasn't a film. So she said, Dan said, yeah, Ellen pretty much will give you like carte blanche. She just wants you to finish the film. I said, okay, send me a script, send me the footage. She said, there is no script. I said, what do you mean there's no script? I said, was there a script? He says, we had something, but there, there's nothing here that I could send you. I said, what? <laughs> I said, wait, I said, do you have a script supervisor? He said, yeah. Does a script supervisor have notes? Because any script supervisor has notes when they shoot. And they said, no, we don't have any paperwork there either. I said, do you got anything? So Dan was able to dig up some like articles about the guy, Douglas Street. And that's pretty much all I really had to go on. And so I watched this tape a couple of times because the one that had all the dropout and the control track issues and tried to make the best I could out of it, plus whatever I could read about Douglas Street. And I thought, well, that's an interesting character. So basically all they sent me was a footlocker, and the footlocker becomes critical later on, with these tapes, and that was it. And that one tape what Kogan had given me, which was, I don't know, it just was like, there were brief moments there, but just kept dropping out. It was very frustrating. So I just sat there and I would put the tapes in the system and I would just watch each of them. Unfortunately, they had slated the stuff. So I knew essentially what the intention was sequentially for the film. I went to all the footage and I decided, here's the course of action I'm going to take to cut this picture. I have worked on occasion without directors. Obviously, I did the thing to Halloween. That was like a very small scale sort of thing. Two pictures I did for Earl Owensby where he pretty much cut the directors out. Actually, I take that back. One of them, the producers were from California and they cut the director out and took me to California to finish cutting their film. Hmm. In those instances, I had a shooting script. I had material to work with. It was like I had a roadmap. Here I had nothing other than the articles and whatever I could get out of whatever that tape was. Dan tried to be as helpful as he could. And so I moved forward and I had some ideas. And it's kind of like when you write this script and you write something and you say, I like it today and then you don't like it tomorrow, that would happen with me. I'd write something, I'd say, yeah, I like the way that's going. And then I'd say, yeah, I don't like the way this is going. And I'd go in and take another approach. Helen Harris would come in 
to New York because she was based in Michigan with her son, Hobart, who was he's a nice young man. They didn't really know anything about film, but that didn't really bother me because they could watch something and express an idea about what they think it should do, you know, who it might play to more, who should be more sympathetic, so forth and so on. And that's fine. That worked. I think Hobart was pre-mid, I think. They were fine. They came in. Wendell got hold of the phone number for the edit room I was in. He would call me up, and I don't know. He just seemed to be negative. I'm there to work at the behest of the production. And if he wanted to call up and say, the scene with such and such, but he didn't really lend anything to it. He just called up and he was just angry. And I can understand him being angry. If I had directed something and it was taken away from me and now somebody else is doing it, I would be upset. But don't be angry at me. It's not like I took it away from him. Give me some feedback that can be constructive. So what ended up happening is that Helen found out that Wendell had been calling me up and she said, don't talk to him. You're wasting your time. And I said, really? She says, I want you to spend your time editing for me. I don't want you to spend your time talking to him. And obviously, there was a problem going on there. And I was not going to get into the middle of it. I said, okay. I just went and did her bidding. She was paying me. I felt bad for Wendell. Here was his vision. But whatever had gone on the previous year, I have no idea. And my objective was to move forward and get this picture locked. But actually, a little side note, very funny about Helen. Again, I really like Helen a lot. She was a kind of, how could I describe it? You know what she looked like? She was like, like that woman, what's her name? Estelle Geddes from Golden Girls, the little diminutive woman who was the grandma or whatever. She was very diminutive, black woman. Real, she's very sharp. Just, she looked like she would be at, she'd go to a lady's social or something. And one time Dan came in before they were coming in for a session and I'm sitting in the room and the room was small enough that you could, how could I say, a room was with Carrie. And I said, Dan, Dan, are you carrying weed on you? And Dan had a package of reefer in his jacket. He says, oh, yeah. You could smell that? I said, yeah. So oh, thank God you told me. I said, that Helen would be really pissed off. I said, why would Helen be really pissed off? I said, yeah, maybe she wouldn't like it. She said, oh, no, she's really anti-drugs. And then you don't want to get on her bad side. I said, why is that? The little purse she carries? I said, yeah, she's, she's got a revolver, a loaded revolver in that purse. I said, what? He says, yeah, when she goes to collect on her real estate holdings, everybody pays. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so I had a whole different, I had a whole different view of Helen from that point forward. I'm saying, here's this, here's this sweet little woman who could probably blow my head off if I wronged her. And, but no, she was very nice. She was very nice as was her son Hobart. Again, I had very fun, constructive times working with them to get the picture cut. But well, nice people. That's amazing. It's like trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle without the box cover. That's a great way to put it. But it's just, huh? What happens is you eliminate issues, you eliminate problems, and eventually you don't have any more problems. There were times when I would take stuff I tried to follow the linear passion of the intention based on the scene numbers, but there were times when I would bridge stuff back. In fact, a lot of times I developed this bridge where I use like a 
there was, there was some footage of a shot of a train passing and it became like a, a lot of times people have establishing shots in the films which on low budget films they often forget to set up a scene with some kind of establishing shot and it's very rudimentary it's still making 101 sometimes it really helps to bridge from one scene to another what's his name jim glickenhouse who did the exterminator his first film and i can't recall the name of his first film he came and my friend victor cut his first film and victor was lamenting he said they shot all these scenes in these locations in these rooms but they didn't do any establishing shots and we were looking at the footage and when you shoot film and the assistant camera person rolls out the roll so they can it to send to the lab they just point the camera anywhere and so sitting there with victor we're looking and at the end of the roll like the guy is sitting out somewhere the camera's rolling off and maybe it's pointed at a house so i said victor this is your establishing shot he says what are you talking about I said there look the rollout you know and lo and behold we kept finding these rollouts from the assistant camera person who happened to be pointing it at a deserted street or a house or some parking lot or something. And so Victor went in and he froze the frames and those became the establishing shots on this film. The Astrologer, that was the name of the film, The Astrologer. So if anybody watches The Astrologer and you see these establishing shots, those are all camera rollouts by the assistant camera person that are frozen because they had no establishing shots in The Astrologer. But... Yeah, but so anyhow, coming back into Chameleon Street, I went and tried to build some bridges. You know, that after a while, you got the sense that, not that it's an uncommon theme, but the whole thing was about money. How are you going to get some money? How do we deal with this life and get some money? And like, I love the drug dealer guy. <laughs> Make some money. I just love that guy. The stuff with the train going by became like, a rhythmic kind of thing. That was one of the things I started to develop with the film. The film takes on a life of its own, beyond the writer, beyond the director, beyond anybody. It, it has its own soul. That's what I try to do with any film, is I establish the soul of the film. Because it, it's experience that film for what it is, whether it's Ridley Scott or whether it's Spielberg. It's still that entity that stands alone by itself. Some films you could look at and you can say, or oh, that's a Ridley Scott film or it's a Spielberg film. Well, even if you don't know who directed it. I have to ask about the voiceover because it's so integral to the film. Was that already recorded or did Wendell come back in and put that on after you had laid down the visuals? There were parts of that that he had recorded when he shot the original film. So I was able to lift that stuff out, but he did a fair amount of it in post-production after I had locked the picture. He was basically married to the cut because Helen didn't want him to do anything picture-wise to the cut because she was afraid that the film wouldn't get finished. So he did a lot of that. Actually, the once the film was cut, normally the picture editor stays through to deal with the post audio. I had actually set up the arrangement with a guy I knew named Bernie over the place called Sound Dimensions, which was actually in the same building that I was in. You could literally walk around the corner and there was a way, even though they were on the fourth floor, there was a doorway on the fifth floor, which is where August Films was. You could enter and you can get into that facility. I had made the arrangement and Helen went in and sealed the deal, which is what 
she needed to do. And they were happy with the arrangement. I was always happy with working with Bernie because he always delivered more than I expected. He also would work a flat, which sometimes he didn't care for. A, a flat can shoot you in the foot. I, I would almost never work a flat unless I was going to bill an exorbitant price that people would say, you're out of your mind. And then they'd play me on a weekly or an hourly, whatever, because you can get carried away in post-production. I've worked on pictures for literally where the director spent, working on the director spent nine months. He just kept changing everything over and over again. And it, it was on Avid. And I kept looking at it. I'm saying to myself, I'm going to go look back at my old cuts. And I'm saying, this is the same cut we did six months ago. But anyhow, that's the danger of post-production. Anyhow, they took me off the picture, rather Helen took me off the picture. So it wasn't anything malicious. She just said it was going to be more cost-effective to bring in Wendell from Michigan and do the audio than to keep me on hired. And Wendell could have come in, could have recorded the lines and could have left. Now I could have finished it. But he was there the whole time. I would say they, they spent at least 20 weeks, if not longer, on the audio, which is not unheard of for a film, except a low-budget film that's a bit too much on a low-budget film. And I did hear a couple of the editors who work on the film were lamenting about working with Wendell, the, something like that. They couldn't understand, and I can appreciate, he would go to a recording session and he'd wear, you know, that Walkman he has in the film with the headphones? Yeah, he would wear that Walkman into the recording session in the studio while he was recording but he'd have the headphones on. And so one, they're getting bleed from the headphones when he's recording. And two, he wasn't focusing on the fact that you got to do recording. And might've been because Bernie was working a flat. If he took two minutes to record this or two hours to record it, it wasn't going to cost him any more, which I personally find a bit abusive. I would never have anybody coerce me into a hurry, hurry if I've got a flat, but at the same time, I would respect the idea that let's do this and move on once we get it right. The other thing that that they were lamenting about, and leave this to your imagination to figure out what was going on. Wendell had this personal assistant that came with him to New York, this guy Dale. I don't know what Dale did other than to be a personal assistant. And these editors said that sometimes they'd have to stop working because Wendell would go to Dale, go out and get me some videos, which is apparently code. Dale would go out and he'd come back a little bit later. And granted, we're working in the Times Square area, just to give you a sense of where we were. This is back in the late 80s, early 90s. It was back, the film was released in 90, so late 80s. So he'd come back a little bit later and Wendell and Dale would excuse themselves and go down the hall to the men's bathroom and lock the door. And anyhow, use your imagination. That's all they told me. That's what I know. But whatever one wants to do with their life, it's their business. But it's a time for work and a time for play. And I think one has to prioritize what one is doing at any given point in time. Anyhow, that's what they told me. Like I said, it, it took a long time for them to do the post audio on it. Bernie was just the right man for the job. He, Bernie had worked for people like Robert Altman. He would build 
a sound design. And in fact, a lot of the notes I gave to Bernie were based on, I, I had done a fair amount of sign design. I did Richard Foreman, if I know if Richard Foreman, he's an avant-garde theater director. He did one theatrical feature called Strong Medicine, and I was his sound designer on that. And it was really fascinating working with Richard because if you've ever seen any of his avant-garde theater, it's just very revolutionary, unique, one of a kind of things. Again, the kind of experience where sound is just not a knock on the door and you put a knock on the door. Richard Foreman was the kind of guy who would create an audio experience with his theatrical events. He didn't just think that it's just a visual, it was also the audio experience. So I really appreciated working with Richard Foreman and I did a sound design. So I gave a lot of notes to Bernie, which I think was helpful to an extent, especially when I was written out of the picture. Anyhow, there was this thing about the footlocker. As I mentioned earlier, they gave me a footlocker with the tapes. And Helen's last trip to New York, I had an empty footlocker because the sound people need whatever the source material it is to pull audio for whatever reason to to replicate something, to extend audio tracks, whatever. So I had gotten all the tapes over to Bernie. He didn't want the footlocker, which is going to take up space. He put it on a rack anyway. So I had this empty footlocker that was sitting at August Films in the edit suite. So when Helen came to see me, she said, do you need that? And I said, no, I don't need a footlocker anymore. She said, okay, I'm going to take it back with me to uh, Michigan. I said, okay. So she took the footlocker. So anyhow, I don't know, a week or two later, the lab guys, and basically there were three labs in that part of town. There was Precision Deluxe, and Technicolor, and there was TVC. And the guys at all the labs, they all knew me. And they're coming to me and they're saying, hey, there's some guy running around town in the Phil Center building, the Technicolor building. They're saying that you stole a footlocker. I said, what? And at first I'm trying to figure out what footlocker. And then I said, footlocker. Oh, maybe it's that footlocker that Helen took. So apparently it was Wendell was yelling at people that I had stolen this footlocker. And I'm going to myself, my God, this isn't the guy I ever talked to his mother. I said, so eventually, apparently he talked to his mother and she explained to him that she took it back there with her. And what annoyed me about that was that he knew that I was hearing all this nonsense from people. But he never came up and apologized to me. A simple apology. Okay, an oversight. Okay. We all have oversights. We all can make mistakes. So just own up to it. But never heard word from him. And in fact, Simon Nupturn from August Films. What a character. Wendell came into August Films and he was shouting at Simon. He says, Matt Mallison, he stole my footlocker. Have you seen the footlocker? And so Simon goes over to a desk. And this is what he tells me. I was not witness to this. He goes over to the desk and there's a pile of papers and he says, lift up the pile of papers and look underneath the pile of papers. He says, it's not here. And then he goes to another pile of papers and lifts up the pile of papers and looks and says, oh, I don't see any footlocker here. And apparently Wendell got so ticked off, he just stormed out of the office. But <laughs> again, I understand that Wendell could be upset that his mother took the film away from him, but it was completed People look at a film, and they look at the end, but they say, who directed this film? And that's what it really comes down to. So he should have just took it for what it was and left it as that. In fact, 
when they were doing the end credits, again, because everybody in the film community on that part of town knew me, they were doing the end credits at Effects Unlimited, the end crawl, and the, this guy, Mo, who owned the company, called me up and said, Wendell's removing your name from the end credits as an editor. I said, what? So I went and I called Helen up and I talked to her and she was very apologetic. She had no idea. What did she know? Wendell's in New York, supposedly finishing the film. And so Wendell, in the end credits, he put himself, says, I think written, directed, and edited by, and I'm saying to myself, God, the guy is like, what is with this guy? Apparently, a lot of people had seen the cut, and they were really excited about the cut and thought it was really great. And it's like, he decided then that he was going to take away any possible glory from me by putting his name as, the, as edited by and removing my name. So she said to me, really sorry, what about, and I guess this is a compromise between a mother and a son. You can't deny a mother and son. She said, what if he make you supervising film editor? I said, Alan, it's really not the case, but if it's going to appease the process, so be it. So it's very funny because Films Around the World released a VHS, because VHS was back in the day, that's what it was. On the, the sleeve, it says, I'm the editor of the film, but on the credits in the film, it says, I'm the supervising film editor. I told people, put this on my tombstone, which is sometimes the most important credit in this business is the one on your bank account. <laughs> because it really comes down to that sometimes. The other one I'm infamous for is that, especially see it nowadays, if you watch like a a movie on like a TNT or a TBS or something. And I said that that te television stations utilize what's called relative velocity. And I, they say, what's that? Said, That's when the credits roll by so fast that only a relative can catch your name if they don't blink. That's relative velocity. There's so many things that I worked on that my name isn't attached to. I know it. A handful of people know it. I remember this one guy told me, Early on, he said, editors are whores. And I, I just said, that, that's a really poor attitude. I said, editors are taken advantage of. And on rare occasions, somebody will say thank you to an editor or appreciate an editor. You got to go in there and do your job and accept the fact that what you did and move on. I have to say, unfortunately, and it's not just editors, but a lot of people in various capacities in the film business who are just not happy people because they feel they were taken advantage of. And I don't know, it's life. <laughs> I don't know why I'm just recalling when, you know, the film went to Sundance and it won the grand jury Sundance prize, which is a great accolade for the film. And talking to Helen and I said, I heard that. That's great. Did you get any distribution deals? She says, oh yeah, we got a distribution deal from Hemdale. And Hemdale at the time, people may not have heard Hemdale, but I'm pretty sure Hemdale was the original distributor of the Terminator movie, the original Terminator movie. That was a big thing for them. So I said, oh, I said, that you're tied into major studios. You should get a good distribution deal. He said, oh, we're not going with them. I said, why not? He says, we've been told they're crooks. I said, Helen, all distributors are crooks. I said, that comes with the territory. I said, the only distributor that never had half a decent track record was Orion. And they went out of business because 
they were actually giving legitimate payouts to the people who they were working with. And in fact, Terry Levine told me, Terry Levine, again, a distributor, said to me, Matt, if you ever have a picture and you consummate a deal with the distributor and you get your advance, the first thing you do with that advance is you put it all in the bank. Don't spend any of it. I said, why is that? He says, because that's the money you'll have to use when you hire an attorney to get them for trying to beat you on the tail end after the film's distributed. This is coming from a distributor. Like on Fist of Fear, Touch of Death, my deal with Terry was like all my money was up front. I had no proper participation. I really wasn't interested in it. He did very well by me. I was very happy. The day the picture opened, I was paid in full. I actually remember the budget for the picture because he showed me the sheets. It was $122,500 was what Fist of Fear, Touch of Death cost. I made about mm, between twenty and $25,000. So if you do the math there, you look at that and you say, in today's numbers, that's like a one-fifth of the budget. So if I did a $100 million picture today, would I get, would I get $20 million? I said, that, that'd be pretty good. Everything is relative. Afterwards, I don't know. I thought Wendell really didn't take advantage of the situation he had been presented with. Because, again, obviously not everybody wins Sundance. And when you win Sundance, you got to capitalize on it while you're hot. He was on national television. And I remember I went to watch this thing. And I said to myself, this would be great. We talk about the process and, you know, about the struggle, filmmaking. He gets on, and I don't know, maybe he had 10 minutes of being interviewed. Most of that 10 minutes he spent moaning and groaning and griping about his negative matcher because the negative matcher had withheld a reel because they had a dispute. And he was holding up his creative process. From what I could tell, because I knew the negative matcher, Wendell they, was delinquent on payment. So, you know, anybody in business, you pay me, I give you your goods. You don't pay me, I don't give you your goods. That's life. Just even if that was the case, national television, I would talk about the struggle of making the film. I would just swallow whatever anger I might have about that situation and say, yeah, we made this film and this it was a real struggle and a real challenge and people work really hard and people were just dedicating themselves to the task. And that's the kind of stuff you talk about. Probably more than half the people who are watching that, if not more, said, what's a negative matcher? And why does that even matter? Wendell, he needs to relax. <laughs> he just, I don't know. I do think that he's a brilliant individual. The concept behind Chameleon Street was excellent. Sometimes you hit and sometimes you miss. I had actually worked years before with a fellow named Phil Fenty. Granted, until Spike Lee came along, there weren't a lot of black filmmakers of color making inroads into the industry. And Phil Fenty had written the screenplay for Superfly. And so he did a film called The Baron. I love The Baron. I've been trying to get a hold of Philip Fenty for years. I don't know what he's up to. But I've got to tell you, such a nice... Philip Fenty, i got to tell you, across the board, probably, if not the most, one of the most intelligent, focused people I have ever met in my life. This guy was sharp, very sharp. And the film The Baron was not the average black exploitation film. It wasn't even an exploitation film. He had intelligent actors, 
people of color was it Calvin Lockhart, Raymond St. Jacques. We actually worked on that because he came to August Films and the ending of The Baron, assuming which version you saw, is an ending that we created at August Films. With the, the thing with the car and the explosion. When we did The Baron, Simon and I were working on it and we did the whole thing, the recut and the finishing. And of course, we had to do a print and he needed a print for a screening the next morning of when we were working on it. Simon and I were actually doing the timing. We actually had a Hazeltine printer. If anybody knows the Hazeltine, the Hazeltine assigns the color values to a shot, RGB, people have heard of RGB. So in the day, this was the technology. And basically what you do is you look at it, you analyze it. When you like the color, it gives you values for the red, the green, and the blue. And you put those on a piece of paper, you write down those values, be 25, 30, 25, whatever. I'm just making numbers up. And then you had to go, in order to have it printed to live, you had to create a punch tape, which were like those old punch tapes, the data systems, like like the old punch cards when computers were these big monsters, but they were punch tapes. And they had retrofitted these punch tape technology to the printers so that as it would hit each cut, it would change to the number, the value of the shot colors, whatever it might be. So in order to get this done, Technicolor was not going to do anything to help the Baron because this was when one of the Rocky movies came out. And I think it was Rocky Two, And we were working on the Baron. And so they could care less what one guy with one print is going to do when they have printed out hundreds upon hundreds of prints that had to go out the next morning for the release of Rocky and the theaters, some ridiculous amount. And to understand how labs worked in a day, Technicolor had operations East Coast and West Coast. So they would make an interpositive, generate an internegative, and then that became a printing negative. And so you'd have prints made on the East Coast, prints made on the West Coast, and then you'd have two shipping hubs, East and West, to distribute it to various theaters. I remember going up to one of the mini brothers. A, a lot of the film business, you'd had brothers, fathers, sons, and it was Richard Minnie. And you'll have to excuse my French, but I remember him saying to me, I said, we're having a print done of the Baron. I'm going to come pick it up tomorrow morning. He says, what the fuck do you think you're doing, the Baron? We're doing Rocky here. You're out of your freaking mind. Forget it. And he was laughing at my face. He was one of the expediters. And so Simon said, here's what we're going to do. He says, I'll do the timing. You do the punch tape. Put the punch tape inside of the cut negative hands. And then you got to go find Charlie Ponty. Now, Charlie Ponty was the night manager at Technicolor. And he says, and you got to give him this. And Simon on his desk had a brown paper bag. And looked inside the bag was a bottle of Tanqueray gin. He said, he, he says, I've spoken to Charlie. You give this to Charlie. Charlie will take care of the print. So I went down there. I was pulling an all-nighter. So I'm there. I don't know. I finished the punch tapes like two in the morning. I take the bottle, take the brown paper bag. I go to Charlie's office. He's not there. But it, I go in and put it on his desk. And I leave because I figured that's all I could do. And so apparently what Charlie did is Charlie went when the guys take their lunch break in the lab because he's he a printer. That's that's how he started in the business. So he knew how to print. So he went. He took all the cans of the Baron 
from the expediting room, brought them into a printing room, put them up on a machine. He printed out a print of the Baron with my punch tapes. And I remember contacting him when his shift was about over. I called up, I said, did you get the package? He said, oh yeah, I got the package. Thanks a lot. So he got his package from Simon. So I remember going in, the funniest thing, I went into the expediting counter. And of course, they're going crazy because they're spooling off all these prints of the Rocky movie. And I come in and there's Richard Minnie. And I said, Richard, I'm here to pick up my print of the Baron. He's, again, what the fuck are you talking about, man? There's no print of the Baron. Come on, we're doing Rocky here. I said, could you take a look, please? Because Charlie had assured me. And lo and behold, already in ICC cases, broken down, ready to go right to the projector, these two ICC cases with the Baron. So he looks at me with this look of like, how the heck did you pull that off? kind of look on his face. And so I signed for it. I came, took the ICC cases, and I just smiled, and I you have a great day. And I just left. That's the way we worked at August Films. You get it in, and you got the job done. But I, I do know that Philip, as nice a guy as he was, he had a real challenge. I think some of it was due to the fact that he was a, he was a person of color at a time when that was not expected. Again, this is probably like a good... 10 years before Chameleon Street. And I was really surprised that nothing came further for Wendell after Chameleon Street because, man, it was right around the time of Spike Lee and there were just like a lot of emerging black filmmakers. I'm just guessing here that the subject matter was not the assumption of what Hollywood thought black filmmakers should be doing. Because that was that was the case with Phil Fenty, that it was not the expected black filmmaking experience that Hollywood wanted. But open up, open your mind, be receptive to a new way of thinking because it may become the norm. The gay community, the same thing. It's like people got out there and started to produce things that were, shall we say, not the standard fare. And a few of them fell by the wayside. But then nowadays... We have great filmmaking experiences because we have perspectives from people from all walks of life. And I just love it because it just, it enriches us all. So what are you up to these days? I do consulting as the case may be, but most of the time I'm sitting and writing and I'm actually in the process of trying to write something that one of, one of the best things I personally think I ever did, I did a short. It was a mystery a while back. We got a lot of positive response from uh, called Joker's Wild, not to be confused with the game show, but HBO bought it. When we you know when they have a, a film running and it runs and then they have 15 minutes left over before it runs out to the hour, they bought it to fill in those spots. Showtime bought it. I won loads of festivals with it. And I did this a while back and I said, this is kind of the direction I think people want to go because people have shorter attention spans. And, and like, for example, like I love Black Mirror. And I said, I would really like to do something along the line of a Black Mirror. You know, and it, everything doesn't have to be a feature film. Story should find its own, I don't know, natural beginning, middle, and end. And if it's 28 minutes long, if it's 14 minutes long, so be it. It's natural. It's real. It's genuine. So that's what I've been writing. I want to put together enough of 
a body of work so that I could say, here we have X amount of stories. And actually, I write stories. At this point, I'm not writing screenplays because I think the stories have to stand on their own. Because if the story stands on its own, then the rest will come along naturally. And actually, if my daughter is listening to me, my daughter is in production. She's a producer. She's got a group of her girlfriends she got together with who did a professional job, really professional job. They've been doing some proof of concept films, and I'm really pulling for them. And it would be nice to work with my daughter. One never knows, and one can only expect that she goes her way, I go my way. And if our paths cross, so be it. But that would be a fun thing to do. Remains to be seen. Anyhow, I'm having a fun time. I'm enjoying life. I was one of the smarter people, I guess, just from a, I guess, a financial perspective in that um, I was putting money into my retirement fund decades ago. I've reached a point now where I can retire. I can retire comfortably. If I want to, I really don't want to retire, but I'm not all that concerned about my financial future. Although, heck, if I live to be 100, I might have a problem, but I'll cross that road. <laughs> Mr. Mallinson, thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. Okay. It was great fun. I am enjoying it. And by the way, they interviewed me for Don't Go in the House for the Blu-ray edition, which is coming out next year. So you can want to look forward to that. Doing these Blu-ray actions. I did one for 50 Feet Touch of Death. And I said I just did this one for Don't Go in the House, but that's not coming out till next year. I'm also... In a, a movie on Netflix that came out, a documentary about filmmakers, in particular martial arts filmmakers in New York, martial arts film. It's saying Kung Fu Kicks, but there's more to the title than that. I'm sure as soon as we get done here, I'll say, oh yeah, that was the title. That's about it. At least that's all that comes to mind. Although I found with these things that when you get done, you say, oh, I could have talked about this or oh, I could have talked about that. But anyhow, it is what it is, as they say. <laughs> 